0: Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. Yes, God, we gather today with gratitude in our hearts. Once again, you have seen us through another week of work and school and activities and service and care. We come today seeking rest and comfort. Seeking healing and forgiveness and rejuvenation. God, we sense your spirit among us here as we sing together, as we make our gifts and offerings, as we share the peace and fellowship with one another, as we gather around these sacred words of scripture. May your spirit speak to us through these words. May your spirit speak to us in this moment, lifting our hearts up, preparing us together at this sacred table to be, want, to be met once again by your all-encompassing love. And presence. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As you heard, today is World Communion Sunday, and so I'm going to talk a little bit about what that means through the sermon, primarily through the lens of the Philippians reading, and so you might want to keep that in front of you as we work through that a little bit uh, together today. First, though, we're going to begin with this uh, classic American product, Caffeine-Free Diet Coke. Caffeine-free Diet Coke. Any of you caffeine-free Diet Coke drinkers? You can raise your hand. we got one, two. alright I'm going to step on your toes a little bit this morning, but bear with me. Of course, Coca-Cola, if you didn't know, was originally sort of put together as something of a medicinal tonic. Right uh, it was treated it was used to treat people it would it would help to calm you right, or it would help to stimulate you. It had caffeine in it, and it had real sugar in it and so originally, a medicinal tonic, it was later sweetened and uh, and, and altered a little bit to make it more pleasurable, more enjoyable to make it taste good right and so the real thing, Coke right, took over the world, the most popular soda by by any stretch of the imagination. And then, of course, in modernity, the contemporary period that we live in, some weird things have happened in the world, and, and we began to change some of those products. In fact, there's a philosopher named um, Slavosh Zizek. He's a European continental philosopher. And he picks up on this theme with caffeine-free Diet Coke. And it's kind of funny what he says, right? Like, we took this thing, Coca-Cola, uh, that was originally sort of medicinal. It had a stimulant, caffeine. It was sweetened with real sugar. And we've took all the things that were good about it, and we've we've taken them out, right? Uh, And so we're left with this thing, caffeine-free Diet Coke, right? And so the thing that it was originally supposed to be, sweet and stimulating, it's now neither of those, right? The sugar's been removed, and the caffeine has been removed, and so he talks about, then, what, what is caffeine-free Diet Coke? It's not really Coke. It's not really water. It's not really satisfying your thirst. I guess there's three of you in here who like the way it tastes, right? But most people don't. So he uses this as sort of a metaphor, right? And you can go with me here, right? Like we have this thing that is the semblance of the thing, but it doesn't actually contain the elements of the thing any longer, right? It looks like the thing. He even says it's like an envelope of the thing, but inside it's void. There's no real Coke in here, just fake sugars and no caffeine. It's sort of a funny little thought process, and you can think about other things that might be like that. One writer has suggested that maybe this analogy is helpful for thinking about the church, right? That maybe the modern American church has become a little bit of a caffeine-free Diet Coke, right? that we started out some 2,000 years ago with these radical commitments to Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, to sharing in a community of faith with, with tax collectors and prostitutes, with people of all different backgrounds and traditions and experiences. I mean, the things that we read about in the New Testament, the way the church came to be. And then maybe some 2,000 years later, we've lost a little bit of the substance, right? Right? We still like the idea of being a part of a church. We still like the, the Coke on the outside of the can. But maybe some of the substance, the things that really made church, church, maybe we've lost that a little bit in modernity. And we're a little bit of a, a semblance of what we once were. Or maybe we're an envelope. We look the same on the outside, but inside there's not as much going on. Right? So I invite you to kind of wrestle with that today. Is our church the real thing, the real Coca-Cola with sugar and caffeine? Or is our church a sort of diet caffeine-free Coca-Cola, right? It's got a nice can on the outside, but inside some of the key ingredients are missing. I told you today we would look at the Philippians 2 passage. I hope this is a passage you're familiar with, but, but if not, I want to do a little teaching around it and remind you of what's going on there and, and why it still resonates with us today. First of all, obviously from the context, we can conclude that there's some sort of conflict in the church in Philippi. It doesn't seem to be a major conflict. Like, Paul doesn't unpack it in detail like he does in the Corinthian letters, but there's something going on. There's, there's two groups or there's two people that are at odds with one another, right? So there's some sort of conflict. Not a surprise that that would be the case in the church as that sort of thing happens. And so Paul writes to them in Philippians offering this, right? This is the, the main thrust of the lesson, right? I know there's some conflict going on in the church, but, but please, right, if there is any encouragement, that if there, that if then, that should really be like because, right, because there is encouragement in Christ, consolation from love, sharing in the spirit, compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete, this is Paul, right, make my joy complete, and then he's telling the Philippians, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, regard others as better than yourselves, Let each of you not look to your own interest, but to the interest of others. So here we have one of the great sort of poetic descriptions of the church, of the community of faith. This is what Paul imagines the church should be like. This is what Paul imagines the church should be like. Because we are encouraged in Christ, we ought to have the same mind, the same love, the same heart. And we ought to care for one another with humility. Not with selfish ambition, we ought to look out for others' interests over and above our own. So when we read that text, it's a real simple sort of transfer, not from the first century Philippi, but but to us here, right? In 2023, First United Methodist Church of of Paragold. Does our church look like this? Does our church function like this? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others better than yourselves. For Paul, this is kind of the measure of the community of faith, right? Having the same love, the same heart, the same mind, modeling Christ's care for one another with humility, putting away your selfish ambition and interests. I've used this text uh, more than a handful of times at at weddings. It's a great wedding text, right? Because the same sort of principles that Paul's expecting of a church could be applied to other relationships like a marriage, right? Right? Have the same heart, have the same mind, the same love, no selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. It's Paul's expectation for the church. But then he continues, of course, if there's going to be this high standard of behavior, of the way we're going to function, then how are we going to do that? Well, this is the how, right? You're going to live like Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of slave, being born in human likeness. Being found in human form, he humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, I hope you saw in your bulletin, as well as here on the slide, uh, the way the text is sort of aligned differently. Because to the best of our understanding from the ancient manuscripts, the best we can tell, what Paul is doing here is quoting a hymn or a poem or maybe even some sort of creed. So when we read Philippians 2, 6 through 10 here, this is called the, the Christ hymn or the canonic hymn. It's this little song about Jesus, right? And we tend to believe that most of the first century church, even though there was no Bible, there were no scriptures, most people could not read or write, that probably they had this memorized, Right? As we share in the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, they probably shared in chanting or praying or repeating this to one another, and so that might be something you consider memorizing as well. I would love for you to be able to just roll that off your tongue, right? Jesus Christ was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something be exploited, so on and so on. This canonic hymn, this, this emptying himself, this hymn, is sort of, of course, the heart of the gospel, right? The ancient world human bodies, the, the experience day-to-day in the created world was not something that was celebrated. I mean, just think about in the ancient world, the, the, all of the, the expectations around your health care and medicine today that were not available then, right? Basic things from, from eyeglasses to physicals to, to headache medicine, right? I mean, just, just little things. None of that was available, let alone major medical care, and so in the ancient world, human bodies were often sort of seen as a distraction, as a hindrance, as a trap. The human body was something to get rid of and to get away from. There was a real celebration of the spiritual, the internal, the thing that would go on living beyond the body. That being the case, why not recognize just how radical what, what Paul is saying, just how radical this is, right? The God who was before all creation, the God that was, was in the form of, of God, the, the God out there came here and entered into human form. All of the brokenness and frailties and frustrations that we know as our human body, Jesus joined us in that that experience. He humbled himself to obedience even unto death on a cross. In other words, there's no part of the human experience, there's no part of the bodily experience that Jesus Christ did not himself participate in, even death. This is a miraculous claim, right? The The ancient world, what they thought about gods, what they thought about these uh, these figures that were far and away with power and authority, Christians now believe that, that God came in a human body. And in so doing, he sort of, uh, he gave our bodies new meaning, right? That life in this world, that life in this body with these people has a richness to it that That others had not considered before that God has redeemed our bodies redeemed even death that there's nothing in our bodies that God and Jesus did not know and make holy and therefore life in these bodies is is really worth living including life in the church Uh, this week I had a chance to meet a new pastor that I had never been introduced before his name is Mark DeMoss uh, he leads a congregation called Mosaic Church in Little Rock in central Arkansas. It's not a large church. It's not a mega church, but it's a really unique church. Uh, Demas kind of comes across as like a, a California tech entrepreneur. Uh, he's like a real fast speaker. He's really high energy. He's bouncing all over the place. He's kind of hard to nail him down. Uh, but he has such enthusiasm around this work of Mosaic Church and the way in which they have gone about their ministry. So I'll tell you a little bit about what they do. Uh, Instead of building a traditional building like we have, a sanctuary or a worship center, uh, he's sort of been given this vision uh, that he ought to go into the poorest parts of Little Rock, the inner city, and try to redeem that part of the city to bring blessing and goodness, including to dilapidated buildings. And so the church first began renting and worshiping in an abandoned Walmart, a major warehouse structure. They're now at what was formerly a K-Mart. And they've converted the inside to be a multi-use worship space, as well as a, a non-profit, as well as a feeding ministry. And then they rent the other half of the building to a fitness club. So this is sort of the other part of their ministry. He knows that the, the people that they do ministry with, their congregation, are not going to bring a whole lot of tithes and offerings in. and So they have to have other ways to generate income, and so they rent their properties where possible. It's a very different mindset and model around ministry, Total, totally counterintuitive and, and very non-traditional. And the thing he kept coming back to was that in this century, in this modern century, the church has to demonstrate the gospel. The church has to demonstrate the gospel. And what he means by that was in the previous century, the church communicated the gospel. Right? You went to a rally, you went to a revival, you heard Billy Graham at a big big crusade, you got saved, and then you got plugged into a local church. But he says in this current day, people are more skeptical of that. And so what the church really has to do is to demonstrate the gospel. It has to do pragmatic things in the community that people can see and understand and to respond to. Part of that demonstrating the gospel includes how and with whom we worship. How and with whom we worship. In preparing the sermon today, I was thinking a little bit about this book by David Fitch. He's a theologian and pastor and And he writes about the last few years in contemporary American culture and the way in which our political identities have become so entrenched that it has done harm to the church. That our, our political identities have sometimes caused the church to tear apart at the same seams as our nation. And when that happens, the church just becomes another institution. We look just like every other institution in the world, left and right, what have you. And so in this book, he says, the church of us versus them, he's trying to imagine and trying to argue for a church that, that sort of exists over and above just the political divisions of our day. And of course, that message really resonates with me. You all have heard me preach enough to know that that would resonate with me, that there's something happening in the church that should make us exist in a different way, in a, in a space of making friends instead of making enemies. In a space that recognizes our differences, but also celebrates our unity and our diversity. That's some of what's going on at the Mosaic Church. That's certainly what Fitch is arguing for in his book. And I think that's worth remembering today on World Communion Sunday. The final thing in today's reading that I want to draw your attention to um, is Paul's summary. Right? You in the church ought to live with one heart, one mind, one love. You ought to work in humility for one another. You ought to not be marked by selfish ambition and conceit. The way you're going to do this is to live into Jesus Christ's ministry who emptied himself even to the point of death. So you're going to empty yourselves to and for one another for the sake of the church. That's the first part. And then here's the final part. Right? God highly exalted him, being Jesus, and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So what Paul tells the church in Philippi, right, the reason you're going to get along is because Jesus Christ has emptied himself and allowed us to live lives of humility and love and care, and because we know that eventually this is where history is headed. I want you to hear Paul's words again. Every knee should bend. Every knee should bend. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess. Now, later, when John writes Revelation, he picks up on some of those same themes and those same visions. That in Christ's final and ultimate victory, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue across history, across time, will be gathered around in sacred and holy and ongoing worship. Every knee shall bend, every tongue shall confess. When we think about the church, and we think about our church, we remember that we are living into a future that has not yet come to be. But this is our hope and our, our vision, this is our dream, that one day everyone will be together and we'll be united in this common meal and in this common worship of Jesus Christ. Today on World Communion Sunday, I invite you to think about some of the themes and some of the points of worship as we come to this table. When we come to the communion table, we're reminded that Christ Jesus is present to us here and now. And that this vision of worship, as Paul offers to the Philippians and is repeated in Revelation, this vision of worship, we are actually participating in that moment even at this time. Bowing, confessing, celebrating, giving thanks for the work of Christ in our lives and in this world. On World Communion Sunday, though most of us look alike in this room, we remember that there are Christians around the globe who are worshiping with us today. Many are Methodists, some are United Methodists, other traditions, Baptists, Roman Catholics, there are people worshiping right now in Perigol, there are people worshiping in Jonesboro and in Memphis, people worshiping across our country, in London and in Germany, there are people worshiping in Ukraine and in Russia, there are people in the Philippines and in Africa and Cuba and Brazil, there are Christians around the world many of whom will join us today celebrating in Holy Communion. And so we remember that we are participating in this reality that has not yet fully been realized but will one day be the case. Every knee shall bend and every tongue shall confess. The Communion table is not just our table. It is Christ's table where all who around the world come together. I was introduced this week to this story. You may already know it. Um, it's called the, Re- the Robbers State Park Experiment. Are you familiar with this? Maybe you heard about it in a psychology class. It happened back in the 50s. It's going to sound so weird, you're not going to think it's true, but just let me get through with it, all right? So in the 50s, uh, some psychologists got together to perform a little experiment on some middle school boys, all right so 22 boys all 11 years old from similar background similar experience similar religious tradition 22 11 year old boys were divided up into two groups of 11 okay and they were sent to a rural state park in Oklahoma not far from the Arkansas line and they were given a chance to develop their teams two teams they, they developed names they developed some leadership this is sort of like summer camp meets Lord of the Flies are you with me okay And so after some time, they brought the two boys together, and they had competitions. They did tug-of-war. They did different experiments. And what happened as they began to compete? They began to argue and fight, right? And they developed sides. My 11 is better than your 11, and and, and it got kind of nasty, right? This was part of the experiment to see what would happen when you divided them up in this way. And so then the, the, uh, the workers introduced some other activities. They weren't competitions, but they were activities where they had to work together. So like their water was shut off and they had to work together to figure out how to get their water to come back on. And so this led to some, some collegiality and to some care and to support. The other thing they did as the experiment went on was that their, their rations became fewer and, and stranger. And so they forced them uh, to work together to produce a reasonable and adequate meal and this was one of the signs of peace in an otherwise very violent and odd experiment. These young boys coming together around a common table. And so many people have continued to reflect on that study, like maybe it wasn't even ethical to begin with. It was certainly very strange and odd. It speaks to our desire for tri- tribalism and competition. But it also speaks to our, our willingness to work together, particularly around a common a common celebration and so i hope that's the case today that as we come to this communion table we remember all the things that make us different of course but even more so that christ unites us that we are not a caffeine-free diet coke church but rather we are a body and blood of christ church name of the father son and the holy spirit amen let us pray holy god we give thanks for your word We give thanks for the testimony of Paul and the early church and the way in which they modeled their consistent desire to live in love and harmony according to your grace and goodwill. May we be that sort of church today. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about First United Methodist Church by going to our website at www.fumcparagol.org. May God bless you this week.